0: Chris, our elder, brought to us a word about the the relational nature of God, God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a distinctive Christian understanding of God, and actually the true understanding of God. Today we are talking about relationships amongst us, amongst the people of God, amongst the church. Before I begin, I want to give a disclaimer I wouldn't want you to think for a moment that I'm standing up here before you as somebody who finds this easy or somebody who is a paragon of virtue or necessarily a good example of what I'm about to say today because those of you who know me will know that I am a sinner and I fall in so many ways and I fall short of God's standards in so many ways and I find it very difficult to put these things into practice so I stand before you as all preachers do not because we are perfect examples I hope we can be examples to you but we stand before you as fellow men who fall short and need the grace of God and don't go away thinking how dare Ben say that I know he doesn't do this and he doesn't do that I know that that's why we need to be gracious with each other that's why we need to pray for one another we're here to build each other up as God's people Read the book of 1 John. Read it, meditate on it, absorb it, put it into practice, most importantly. This is a book that is all about love. This is a book which is all about the love of God. How great is the love of God. How precious that is. And my job this morning, I'm not a trained preacher, but my job is to stand up and open the word of God and let the word speak and hopefully apply it in some ways. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, God himself, will come and apply it to all our hearts. Perhaps everybody in this room needs to hear something different this morning as the Holy Spirit works amongst us. In, this, in these verses, we're concentrating on 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Daniel read the whole section. We won't concentrate on all that in detail for the sake of time. But in the first part of this sermon, it's only going to be a short first part, you'll be pleased to know. I want to look at this, this most concise definition of the love of God. One of the most concise and straightforward definitions of the love of God that we find anywhere in the word. If somebody were to ask you, what is Christian love like? What is God's love love like? Take them to this verse. This is a good place to start. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Before we move on, I'm very aware that these words can trip off the tongue very easily, can't they? We know it. We've heard it a million times. If you're a Christian, you've no doubt heard it in sermons and you've read it in your Bible for years and years and years. Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. It grieves me when I look at my heart to see how cold I am towards this truth believe it believe it with all my heart and yet when I hear it it does not move me in the way that it should I pray as we begin this morning that we would ponder again the truth that we know so well Jesus Christ laid down his life for us if you're a Christian you can say he laid down his life not just for us as a church but he laid down his life for me Paul talks about that. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's personal. What is the proper response when you hear about Jesus laying down your life, his life for you? Is it to say, oh, that's nice. Wasn't that nice of him? Wasn't that kind of him? Jolly good. Dear friends, this is a fearful thing. This is a wonderful thing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life for me. Please do not let the enormity of this pass you by with familiarity. The Son of God, we learned last week about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, emptied himself of his glory, laid aside his majesty, and he became nothing. He became a servant. He took the lowest place. He deserved all the honor and glory and praises of heaven. He laid that aside for the sake of love, for the sake of his people. He came to this world. Was Put on a cross by sinful men. He was despised, hated, rejected, scorned and cursed. And not just by men. Not just by people, but also the word tells us that God the Father himself turned his face away from his son. Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason why God forsook him was because this was part of their agreement for the Lord Jesus to take upon himself the sins of his people. As a living sacrifice. As a sacrifice The Bible calls of atonement, a sacrifice that takes away sin. And Jesus on that cross was cursed and cut off from his father for the sake of his people, for the sake of you, Christian. The Bible often talks about the relationship between God and his people. Jesus and his people has been like a husband and his bride. Jesus Christ, our saviour, gave his life, died a brutal death and suffered, endured that the wrath of God For the sake of his bride, the church. Is that not a fearful thing? Is that not a wonderful thing? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Let no one say that Jesus was an unwilling victim. He didn't want to go to the cross. Well, we know in a sense he didn't want to go to the cross because in the garden he cried out, Lord, if if there's another way, please let this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So in a sense, he did not want to do this, but Jesus himself knew this had to happen to save his bride, the church, and he went willingly, intentionally to the cross. He gave up his life on purpose to save his people so that you and I might not have to face the judgment as guilty sinners in the hands of a holy and righteous God. I don't know about you, but I would not want to face God as a sinner, in my sins, not being forgiven by him. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, you don't have to. If you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven, you stand before him, completely forgiven, and his child. But if you're not a Christian, you're not right with God, that judgment still hangs over you. Some people try to talk about the love of God, and they try to forget about the cross. They try to downplay the cross. They say, Jesus loves you. That's all you need to know. But they don't talk about the cross. When John the Apostle, who wrote these words, when he talks about the love of Christ, what does he go to immediately? Goes to the cross. You want to know about the love of Jesus? Look to the cross. That's where you need to start. Look there. If we just tell people that Jesus loves them, without explaining what this means, then there is no, no need to make any response. People just say, well, that's, that's really nice. Jesus loves me. Who wouldn't love me? Who wouldn't love me? I'm such a lovable person. When we look at the cross of Jesus, we explain that. People realize I'm far from lovable. Jesus loved me despite my sin, despite my wickedness, my rebellion. He still loved me and gave himself for me. The cross of Jesus, dear friends, forces us to make a response. It forces us to confront the fact that we're sinners and we need forgiveness. That's deeply wounding to the human pride. Human pride. Don't feel we need a savior. The cross says, where do you stand before God? Are you forgiven? Or are you still alienated from God? Because the cross is the only way This is God's plan of reconciling people to Himself. The cross of Jesus puts lots of things in perspective self pity, human pride, self righteousness, fear of the future, fear of man. All of these things. Look at the cross of Jesus. Look at the love that was shown for you on that cross. All these things are put in their right place, aren't they? There is no place for pride. There is no place for selfishness or boasting. There is no place for fear, although we do struggle with fear. We have our future secured in Jesus Christ. All the blessings that were his are poured out on us. I don't want to rush on from this. I want us just to ponder this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Where do you stand this morning when it comes to Jesus and the cross? Do you appreciate this? Do you understand what he's done for you? Have you, have you believed on him? Or are you still wavering between two opinions or rejecting the cross to say, I don't need that? You cannot begin to understand the love of Christ without the cross. Let's pause for a moment to ponder, then we'll sing a song. Here is love vast as the ocean. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your, your great love that you laid down your life in a most horrific manner in order to save us. Lord, I pray that we would be overcome with a knowledge of this, an appreciation of this, what you have done for us. The price that was paid, the cost of that sacrifice, son of man, the Lord Jesus became Curse for us is cut off and stricken that we might go free, that we might be forgiven. Help us, Lord, this morning as we live our Christian lives in the days ahead to, to remember and to be grateful. Amen to keep in mind what we've just been thinking about, because this is the basis for the whole of the, the teaching that follows on from this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, brothers and sisters. We're talking about relationships in the church, and there are lots of different things I could have chosen to speak about today but I wanted to focus on this because it's a challenge for me and I hope that we can learn from God's word together what is the response that we are to make when we consider the love of Jesus Christ laying down his life on the cross for us if we understand this if this touches us what response are we to make as Christian people Well, the Apostle John tells us here, doesn't he? The second part of verse 16. And we, Christians, ought to lay down our lives. We should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I want you to think for a moment about the use of the term brothers, and it means sisters as well. What is a brother or a sister? But here it's not talking about blood relations, although that's obviously part of our responsibility to care for our families. It's talking about Christian brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, people in the church. That word brothers is a relational word, isn't it? It implies a close relationship. It implies knowledge of one another. When Paul, um, John talks about this, he's talking about serving each other in the context of a close family like relationship in the church of Jesus Christ. The first thing we can learn from this today is that Christian love is relational, it involves relationships. I want to draw out some practical points this morning, and you might not be used to a sermon being quite so practical and close to the bone as this. My job is not to offend anybody, but to simply help us to think about these things in a biblical context. So bear with me. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Look at verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him. How can the love of God be in him? I want to draw attention to that verse if anybody sees his brother in need. Here is one fact, one statement that nobody in this room, I believe, can argue with. You might dispute with me, you can have a word with me afterwards, i have a coffee. If you are not around your brothers and sisters, you're not in any meaningful contact with them, you will find it very difficult to see them when they're in need. If you're simply not there and your brother or sister is in need of some help, you will very likely miss out on the opportunity to see their problem and be in a position to help them. In a church context, the more time you spend with fellow Christians, getting to know them, getting to know their lives, getting to know the things they struggle with, the more likely you and I are to be able to be in a position to see when they need help. In our culture, we're very used to having a very individualistic society, aren't we? we all, we're all all islands, doing our own thing, quite detached. But the Bible knows nothing of that kind of relationship. Sometimes it's very difficult to see the needs of other people. Sometimes people are very shy about talking about their needs. That's why it's so essential that we actually get to know each other and spend time together in order that we might really know each other well enough to see that my brother is in need, for them to feel comfortable to share with me perhaps the problems they're facing. We need to spend time together as Christians, don't we? Not to the exclusion of everybody else. I'm not suggesting that, that we completely ignore everybody else and just be in our little church huddle. That's not what I'm talking about. But we do need to spend time together as Christians, engaging with each other, getting to know each other in order for us to fulfill this command in the word of God. Let me give you five case studies. These are humorous, and I must say these are not based on anybody... Real or living or accidental. Any resemblance is completely coincidental. These are people I've dreamed up in my head. So don't start thinking, Arsema, don't start thinking, oh, he must be talking about so-and-so, because I'm not. These are people I've made up, the composite people. I've been a in church for the best part of my life, all my life, in fact, and I've met lots of different types of people. And let's examine these people, and let's look at their church involvement, and let's ask the question... Are they in a good position to put this command into practice? Remember, they just made up people, okay? Got that? Good. So, Number one, I'm just going to read it out, the church hopper. Neil, I made up a name, Neil. Neil doesn't think it's very important to belong to a particular church. He goes to a different church every week. In fact, he's been to almost every church in Brighton and Hove at some point. He's even been to Calvary once. He's like a butterfly flitting around from church to church. What's wrong with that? He meets Christians, he hears the word of God. He's encouraged. Sometimes after church, when he's at a particular church, he has a chance to speak to somebody. And have a chat and get to know, well not get to know, but you know, have, a, have a brief chat over coffee with somebody. But the problem is with Neil, he doesn't know anybody deeply. Because he's, one week he's here, next week he's at St. Peter's, next week he's at wherever else, Holland Road. He's flitting around. Is Neil really in a position to be able to put this command into practice to be able to see his brother or sister in need? That was the church hopper. Number two, second case study, the casual churchgoer. Lucy, made up name, is a Christian student from another town, from Basingstoke. She's found a church that she likes and she considers it her church, my church. This is my church, not her personal church, the church that she goes along to. You understand what I mean? She's found this church in the city where she's studying. She likes the church, but she finds it very difficult to go to meetings, to services, to prayer meetings, to actually meet anybody from the church. Why is that? Well, you students, are there any students here? One or two? You know what it's like. The pressures of student life. Coursework. Deadlines. Assignments. Dissertations. There are other distractions too. Frequent Trips home every weekend to see mum and dad. Proper home cooking. Also the clubs and societies at university. She's got loads and loads of stuff going on. The rowing club, the, I don't know what else, the stamp collecting club. Probably not. So late nights out with her friends, exhausted on Sunday morning, can't get up. Church is beginning, she's still snoring away in bed. Can she really, given her church involvement, put this command into practice? Is she in the best position to see her brothers and sisters in need in the church? That was the casual churchgoer. How about this one? The fringe dwellers. Okay? Brian and Angela have been attending a church for over 10 years. They come along to the morning service most weeks and they regard it as their home church. But they don't really like to spend too much time with people in church for various reasons. One, it's because the people in church are a bit odd and they're a bit irritating and because they're always called every, every hour Sunday to grandparent duty. So children ring up, the, pick up the phone, come and, come and look after the kids, mum and dad drop everything and go and look after the grandkids. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes the reason they don't hang around after church talking to people is because they've got an important arrangement, assignment with roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. Urgently calling them to go back home. So what do they do? So they they devise this scheme so they they arrive literally a minute before the service begins, hang around afterwards for about a minute and then rush off and that's all, all their church involvement for the whole week. Brian and Angela are they in the best position to put this command into practice and see brothers and sisters around them in need number four case study the consumer Callum made up name very millennial name isn't it Callum is a young professional who attends a large student focused church in the centre of the city I don't know any churches like that do you I'm not thinking of any particular church. I'm just, you know, get the idea. He loves the music. He loves the inspirational messages. He chats to different people every week, so he sees different people. One week he sees so and so. One week he sees someone else. He might see the same person again a month later. But he goes once a week. It's like going to the theatre or going to a concert. You go there. He goes there. Has his needs met? He enjoys it. He goes home. He doesn't speak to anybody else from the church all week long. If it was built up for the week ahead, I really enjoyed that today. It was awesome worship. But he's not engaged with anybody. Is Callum in the best place to put this command into practice? I want to put it to you this morning. and we, This is humorous, but it is serious as well. Each of these people will find it very difficult to actually put this command into practice, to see their brother or sister in need and be able to help them now I want to say I know that some people would love to be far much more involved in church life than they are and you have all sorts of legitimate reasons why this cannot be I visit the pilgrim home it's a Christian care home those elderly saints are not able to come to church much and be involved but they would love to be and their hearts and spirits are with the people of God I'm sure in most cases it's difficult when you've got serious illness or you're elderly or you've got children to look after or family responsibilities we know that we understand that we have complicated lives and busy lives and lives full of distractions so I believe all the Lord is calling us to do is to do the best that we can in our circumstances the Lord knows our limitations the Lord is patient with us The problem with Neil, the church hopper, remember the guy who goes to to different churches every week, the problem with him is that although he does meet other Christians, he's always moving around. He can never build a meaningful relationship with people. If he really loved these people in the way that John the Apostle describes, he would want to be there again next week to see how they're getting on. The person I prayed for last week, I want to go back next week and see how they're getting on, see how the Lord has blessed them this week but he can't do that because of his lifestyle choice. What about Lucy, the student, who hardly ever gets to church because she's so busy? Chris and I were talking to a young man this week who works with students in Brighton. There are thousands of students in Brighton. I'm sure there are hundreds and hundreds of Christian students. How many of them are committed to churches? I'm sure many just fall by the wayside, drift around. Not good. Not good. Not good for you, not good for others in the church. Lucy's problem is that she's not around other Christians enough to really get to know them. She doesn't know what their needs are. She doesn't get to know them well enough for them to express these needs to her. Last week in Lucy's church, the church she was going to, there was a Korean student who was very lonely, I'm making this up of course, very lonely and wanted someone to speak to a fellow student who would understand her needs. Lucy was sleeping off a hangover or half asleep because of a late night. But she could have been there to meet the need of that girl, to express Christian love. But she missed the opportunity to serve God and put this command into practice. How sad. What about Brian and Angela, the um, casual churchgoers? They keep people at arm's length, don't embrace people, they don't take people into their hearts. They minimise opportunities to love the people of God. Because they're not around, they're not really investing in relationships in the church, how on earth can they really know what's going on in people's lives? How can they know what's important to people? How can they support people? Last week in their church there was a young single mum who was struggling and needed some people to talk to, could have really benefited from that. Angela was a nurse for 40 years. She could have helped out and supported her if she'd been there, if she'd been around after the service to to chat to this this young woman and support her as a Christian. But it also works both ways because Brian and Angela, Angela's mum, is struggling with dementia, and Angela finds it a real burden. If she were around the people of God more, She could express her needs and people could pray for her and support her. So she is losing out on that means of support that God has ordained. The church to support one another and love one another as Christ loved us. It's not a law. We don't have to be with the people of God. But what are we missing out on if we are not doing these steps, taking these steps? What about Callum, the young man who just goes to church like a consumer? Like he was going to a festival, Glastonbury, once a week. For him, church is all about a place where his needs can be met. And I'm not talking about his, his needs of close relationships. He goes there to get a fix of music and teaching. Is that biblical church? His church involvement suits his lifestyle doesn't occur to Callum that the church is a place where you go to meet people to love them, to build them up, to support them, to serve them. He just turns up, gets what he wants, and goes home, that's it for the week. He's got plenty of time for other things, but not for that. The common factor for all these people, dear friends, and you'll find people like this, and a million others, and we can be like this, is that their choices, their lifestyle choices, their church arrangements make it difficult for them to truly love people, to see their brother in need, and to be there to support them and to serve them. As I said, all God calls us to do is to do our best, to be intentional, to get rid of unnecessary hindrances which stop us from doing this. I know it's difficult, I know it's countercultural. You know, we live in a society which is fixated on self. If it feels good to me, I do it. If I don't want to do it, I don't do it. Nobody can make me do it. Dear friends, what should we be looking for in a church? Let this verse, let this principle of loving and serving colour your understanding of what a church should be. If one day you find yourself in a position where you're looking for a church, Either you've had enough of Calvary, I hope that doesn't happen. Or you're in another town and you're looking for somewhere. What are you looking for in a church? I was talking to a young man recently, a Christian, a good Christian. He was raving about a church because of the music. Fantastic worship. That's all very well. I've spoken to other people. They love the Bible teaching in a church. Bible teaching is fantastic. I go there to hear this well-known preacher expound the word week after week. It's amazing. You should come along. These may be good things, but has it occurred to us that we should be looking at a church and saying, how do the people in this church love each other? That takes time, doesn't it? You can't just visit once or twice. you, You might get a glimpse of that, but you need to be there amongst those people to know, how do these people love each other? Because you may be sure if the church is loving each other in the way described here, you may be sure that Christ is there and the Holy Spirit is working in that place. It can tick an awful lot of other boxes. The worship may be amazing, the music, the teaching may be amazing, the Bible teaching. is not enough if love is not to be found. And ask this question if you find yourself looking for a church. Not only is love to be found there, true Christian love, but is it a place where I can can use my gifts and talents and opportunities to serve God in the way described here by laying down my life for my brothers and sisters? Dear friends, it's not about what we can get primarily. We should be served in the church. People should pray for us and support us. What would a church be like if we all came saying, What can I give? How can I serve? Is this the best place for me and my family to serve the Lord in the way described here? There are two measures in John's gospel of true Christianity, true conversion, and a biblical church. One is people walking in holiness. Not perfection, but seeking to increasingly walk in a way which honors the Lord. Walking in the light. And the second way we can tell a church is biblical is that love is to be found there not just niceness middle class kind of christian british niceness but a genuine heartfelt sacrificial serving love evidenced by good deeds and service in the life of the church some of you might think that chris and us we bang on about this, like this thing about church involvement i'll give it a break talk about something else Friends, I've come to learn the hard way of my Christian life, how important it is. If we are to put this into practice in a meaningful way, relational Christian love, we have to be in a church situation where we can do this. And we have to be intentional about this. And I don't want anybody in this room to miss out on the goodness of being part of a church, a loving, caring community of Christian people expressing Christ-like love. Some of us may need to make changes to our lifestyles. Make difficult choices. But there is a blessing to be found in that. You won't lose out doing that. You'll be blessed in obedience to God's word. Put yourself in the best possible position to be able to serve your fellow Christians. And that starts with being there to know them and to see them. It's easy to say that you love the church. I love the church. I love the the universal church in all the, all the world. It's easy to say that you love all men. The rubber hits the road when you love those people around you, the people that God has called you to. If I say, say to God, I say, well, you know, I love all the women in the world, or I love all the children in the world, God will say to me, Ben, how did you love your wife? How did you love your children? I'm not particularly interested in how you, you love people you don't you don't really know i'm interested to know how how do you love the people that i've given you to love and dear friends god has given you a people to love yes we're to love all christians in the world but he's given you a local body how do you love those people is it a matter of words and things that we say or is it a matter of practical service in the manner of christ You know, friends, the church, a local church, is a genuine, warts and all, body of people. We're not perfect. We're full of strange characters, including me. People have got their funny little ways, their idiosyncrasies, their annoying habits. Get used to it. Every single church in the world is like that. People let you down. People fail. People fall short of their own expectations and your expectations, including elders and pastors. What do you do? Up sticks and go somewhere else? Stick with it. Because there's an enormous sanctification. You know, God can use that experience, being in a church like that with fellow sinners, to make you more Christ-like and more holy and more like Jesus. We Christians, we share our ups and downs together. We share life together. We sympathize and help those who struggle we pray for them, we bear with them, we forgive them, and they do the same to us. We walk through life together, we exercise grace and forgiveness, and we learn to be more like Christ in doing so, to love them, to love a real people that you're committed to. So the first point is that Christian love is relational. It involves relationships. Brothers and sisters... The second point we can learn from this passage is that Christian love is practical. Verse 17 says this if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? When the Apostle uses this word see, he's not just talking about seeing something, just oh, just noticing something. He uses the word behold. This word is not a word we use very often. It's an old English word. It means to take something in, to observe something, to notice it and to to, to drink it in. I'm looking at something, I'm noticing it, I'm registering it, I'm taking it in. That's what it means here, to behold something. I behold my brother's in need. I see he has some problem and I'm focusing my attention on that. If we see this, what should we do about it? Well, John says here, if we see our brother or sister in need, we don't have compassion on them. We don't have pity on them. How can the love of God be in us? Read this in the, the authorised version. It says this, if anyone, anyone shutteth up the bowels of compassion from him. I love the AV. It's very graphic. Shutting up the bowels. The bowels is the, the seat of your emotions, the seat of your, your personality. Shutting up your bowels, the inner part of you shutting it up against your brother. In the early church, dear friends, there would have been a massive gap between the rich and the poor. It would have been far more obvious than today. You would have had rich people and poor people cheek by a jowl in the congregation, the assembled people of God. And you would have had people who were in dire, desperate poverty and need. There was no welfare state. You can imagine a church where you've got rich people and poor people, massive difference, the potential for division. And yet, John says, if somebody is in need in your congregation, what should you do? Should you just feel sorry for them? So what a shame, what a pity. Look at that poor man over there. Should you go up and put your, your arm around his shoulder? Bless you, brother. I'm so sorry that you're, you're starving. Your family has no money. You've got no money to feed your children. I'm very sorry about that. You've got a massive wad of cash in your wallet. Do you go away and just pray for that person? I promise to pray for you tonight at the prayer meeting. Dear friends, if you have the means, if we have the means to help someone, in whatever way it might be, someone is in need and we see that need, we register and behold that need and we have the means to help them. Pity is not enough. Sympathy is not enough. Prayer is not enough. You are that man. You are that woman. If you have the means to help. You don't need to go away and pray about it. You don't need to ponder it. You don't need to discuss it with your spouse. I find this difficult. Do you? You are the man. You are the woman. You are the person that God has appointed to help that person, if you can. Isn't that the instinctive thing that you do to people that you love, you truly love? You see someone in need. You have the means to help you. It's not even a question, is it? You want to help. You you enjoy helping them. You don't just talk about it, you express practical help in practical ways. And dear friends, this is how Jesus Christ, my Saviour, our Saviour, loved the church. He saw his church, well he saw, saw the sinners in desperate need, ruined by sin, under the curse of judgment. Nobody else could help, nobody else could step in. Jesus Christ saw our need. And he stepped in and he saved us and he helped us. He practically did something. He didn't just say, I love you. He backed it up with his actions. He put his money where his mouth was. He died for his people to save us. Dear friends, it's very hypocritical and sad for us to say we love people, to sing about loving people when we ignore their needs. Sometimes it's a matter of being wrapped up so much in ourselves we just don't notice We're all selfish. But there is a warning here for anybody who beholds, who sees a fellow Christian in need and has the means to help, who can help, but shuts up his heart against that person. How can the love of God be in such a person, says John? How can you claim to know and love God, to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you shut up your heart against that person? a precious soul that Christ has died for, a fellow Christian, a brother. Do you really understand or appreciate the love of Christ for you in that case? Dear friends, let me say this. How you and I treat other Christians, our grace, our forgiveness, our love, reflects our understanding of how much Christ has done for us. If we don't forgive other people, it proves that we don't understand the forgiveness of Christ we don't love other people, it proves we don't love Christ. We don't understand the love that he has for us. What does James say? James says something remarkably similar in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Stark words. People get hung up about this verse. They say, James is saying that we can be saved by good works. Nonsense. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, nothing else. All that James is saying here is that if you are a true Christian, and you know the love of God, and the Spirit of God has been poured out in your hearts, your faith will be backed up by evidence and the biggest part of evidence is love one of the biggest parts Christianity is not about empty words it's not about empty professions it's about what you do which proves and shows evidence of God's work in your life a few months ago i spoke about the parable or not the parable the what jesus talks about the sheep and the goats people say oh he's advocating Work, salvation. If you, if you all be kind to each other, you'll get to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. What he's talking about is evidence of Christian faith. It's not just a matter of saying the right words. It's actually loving people and meeting practical needs and helping people and showing compassion and mercy. The wonderful thing is, the Bible says, if we serve brothers and sisters in Christ, we're actually serving the King Himself. Because Christ dwells within his people by by his spirit. You serve your brother and sister. Give them a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. You are serving the king. And he will not forget the love that you have shown to him and to his people. Conversely, if you ignore the needs of brothers and sisters, even though you clearly see them, you just couldn't care less. You shut your heart up against them. You are shutting your heart up against the king. What a sad thing that would be. I'm sure no, no Christian would want that to happen. What does John say in 1 John? He says this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Dear friend, if you call yourself a Christian but there is no evidence of Christian love in your life, practical love, desire to be with the people of God and to serve them, the Bible, the word of God calls into question your salvation because that is evidence. Now, of course, none of us loves as we should do and none of us loves perfectly, but... There should be a measure of this and an increasing measure of this in your life. And if it's not there at all, you couldn't care less really about the church and brothers and sisters. And you have to do some business with God. Say, am I really a Christian? This is not just a matter of words or traditions. What a, a beautiful place a church would be, wouldn't it? If everybody was putting this into practice, this practical love, meeting needs, helping people, serving not just financially but in a myriad of ways i believe this is this goes beyond just putting food in people's bellies it's actually serving each other in so many different ways come to that in a minute dear friends the world knows nothing about this kind of love imagine if people came to our church and saw this and were struck and said there's something special about these people there's something beautiful about this community I've never seen anything like this. Why on earth do you love each other like this? What did Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In marriages, and families, relationships between Christians. People say, what is it about you that's different? We say, it's Jesus Christ who has loved us. We love in a similar way, following his pattern. Christian love is relational. Christian love is practical. Christian love is sacrificial. The last point. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Think about what Jesus did when he died on the cross for his church, his bride. Not only was his love practical, he did something practical to meet our needs, it was also sacrificial, it was costly. Dear friends, Christian love, properly expressed in this context, is sacrificial and it is costly. And if you mean to love in this way, it will cost you something. Jesus had to give up his very life. He laid it down for the good of his people. So that those he loved could be saved. It's possible to pick and choose, isn't it? And I've done it a million times. To pick and choose how we love people. We may love them practically, but in token gestures, we do it it when it suits us and only up to a point. If the sacrifice is too great, I don't do it because it's too much. I help, help you up to a certain point, but I've got my limits. It's worth asking the question today. Ask yourself, Christian person, what are my limits for serving people? What price am I willing to pay? What am I willing to give up in order to serve the people of God, to lay down my life for them? I put it to you that every single person here has got a limit. Only you and God know what that limit is. It's very unlikely that any of us will be called to lay down our lives, physically die for a fellow Christian. even if we did, it wouldn't be the same as Jesus. We can't die as a sacrifice of atonement for somebody else, but I suppose it's possible that a Christian might be called to die for his fellow Christians in some country where there's persecution. I don't know. What we are called to, each and every one of us, is a different kind of laying down our lives. The daily giving up our own desires and pleasures and comfort and security and well-being for the sake of people we love. In small but important ways every single day. Dear friends, that's what a marriage is about. That's why a marriage is so difficult. Don't have this romantic idea, young people, about marriages. Marriage is a great blessing. An enormous blessing from God, but marriage is hard work. Marriage involve, especially if you're a man, giving up your life for your wife. Serving her, how I fall short. In those small but important ways every single day, laying down your own interests, your own desires, your own pleasures for the sake of your wife that God has given you. Dear friends, that, that kind of love should be evident in the church as well, in the bride of Christ. Is there really any sacrifice that's too much to ask for us as Christians to make for a fellow believer? If we know nothing about this kind of practical, sacrificial love that costs us, have we really understood what it means to love in this way, to lay down our lives? A few practical examples. These are just things I've drawn out thin air. What sacrifices am I willing to make for my brothers and sisters' spiritual well-being? Because it's not just about money, as I said, it's about the well-being of our brothers and sisters, including the spiritual well-being. Would you, would I be willing to sit up half the night counselling a family who had just lost a child, you know, a miscarriage, to lose half the night's sleep to be with them, or is that a sacrifice too far? Would I be willing to sacrifice my lie-in to be at the prayer meeting or communion so that I might encourage other Christians? I know it's difficult, isn't it? We're all tired i must be there i don't want to i'd much prefer to lie in bed or have a nice lazy morning reading the morning paper or whatever just lounging around the house i want to be at church because somebody might need me to be there for them to support them to pray for them to encourage the younger believer who might come and see 10 people at communion and say why do i don't need to bother to go to communion half the members are not there is that a price too much to ask Would I be prepared to do a rotten job in the church, cleaning out the drains, so that somebody else doesn't have to do it? Ladies and gentlemen, this church is full of rotten jobs. Chris will give you a big long list of things that need doing. Some of those jobs are not particularly pleasant. Someone needs to do them. Is that a price too far, or will somebody else do it? Would I be prepared to help with a ministry, perhaps Sunday school that's got, you know, at the moment we're we're well blessed with helpers, but would I be prepared to do something I don't really want to do because there's a need to be met and I want to serve the children of the church? Or is that a price too much to ask? Dear friends, there are are millions of things, aren't there? And I've got my own pet weaknesses and I've got my own limits, my own selfish things, just as I'm sure you have as well. And once again, let me say, I know there are good reasons why we cannot do things. We cannot help with certain jobs. We cannot be at communion. I understand all that, and God understands. But I'm talking about intentional choices, sacrificial choices, not saying, well, that's fine as far as it goes, but that's a a bridge too far. I'm not prepared to do that because I I, I reserve the right to my comfort or my lie-in or whatever it might be or my money or my time. And this is not about ticking boxes, well, I've been at church, I've done it. It's about a mindset, an attitude that's found amongst true Christians. Intentional, active intelligence. I'm coming to church today, I'm going to bless my brothers and sisters. I'm looking out constantly like, like a lion on the prowl, looking out. Maybe that's a bad example. Looking out for the needs of my brothers and sisters. Intentionally, how can I serve today? Not just at Sunday morning, but throughout the week. You've all got smartphones. I've got my old Nokia. Even with my old Nokia, I can still call people and text people. I don't do it often enough. We've, we've got all the means to have a web of communication throughout the week, care and concern. I've been very impressed with Vicky and Lou, but our dear brother and sister. Vicky's just had a baby, little Emma. Most of us haven't seen her yet. Can't wait to see her. It's been a good network of the women of the church coming alongside Vicky, supporting her, loving her, bringing her food. Dear friends, I've been enormously blessed by many of you over the years. You've sacrificially served me and my family. And I thank God for you because I see Christ in you. And that's the kind of love that John is talking about here. It's relational, it's practical, but it's also sacrificial. It means late nights and early mornings. It means being tired and being absolutely exhausted, flopping on your bed after something, absolutely frazzled because I've been serving the people of God. I have to give up things that I want, hobbies and lifestyle choices and my money for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of building up the church. How we need intentional Christians, people who intentionally do things, who think actively about each other. Let me say this, we're all bound up together. We're not individuals. We are individuals. We comprise the church of Jesus Christ. We are bound up together. We have closer bonds than even blood brothers and sisters. My brother struggles, I struggle. We, we, we live and work, we stand and fall together as Christian people. The choices we make, the choices you make affect other people. Laziness, negligence, lack of concern for others affects the church. Your people look at you and see how you live and how I live. And they take notes. Not literally, but they, they make observations. They learn from us, our examples. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That love, as I said, should be practic- uh, relational between people in the context of a local church. It should be practical, actually serving each other, meeting needs. It's also sacrificial. Jesus went to the cross. He sacrificed. It cost him something. It will cost you something. But it is a blessing. As I said, I've seen fantastic examples of this over the years. It brings a lump to my throat to even think about how people have served me. Don't deserve it. But I also know that I have been guilty of being cold-hearted, selfish, blind to the needs of others. I'm sure all of us fall short. Let's go back to where we began, the cross of Christ. The mercy seat. May God really grant us a deeper appreciation deeper understanding of what happened to that cross. And may we be a church where, where Christ's love is found among us, not just in words, words and tongue, but with actions and in truth. That all men, all people may know that we are his disciples. May God give grace. This is difficult. But this is the only way. Let's pray.